0: Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast celebrating Chiclet and the so-called guilty pleasures you're sort of done feeling guilty about. My name is Caroline Donoghue and when I released my first novel this year, I found myself being asked the same two questions over and over again. One, did I think of my novel as Chiclet and two, was I offended if it were called that? Which is weird because all the best women I know are also devoted fans of Chiclet and this podcast is dedicated to examining what's good, great and occasionally questionable about the genre. Today, I'm joined by journalist and author of the forthcoming Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For, Ella Risbridger. We're talking about 2001's Millie's Fling by Jill Mansell. Hi. Hi, friend. Hi, friend. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Obviously, I'm not welcoming you to my life because (laughs) you and I have been uh, best friends since the moment we met. Yes, many, Um, many years ago. Many, many years ago. It was kind of a love at first sight situation i think it really truly was it's very befitting of this book where everyone is just gentle and holding their friend this is
1: really a book about how it
0: is nice to have a friend (laughs) it's nice to have a friend is the meaning of the book so um, So what made you (laughs) choose this book
1: i i really struggled because i love everything jill mansell has ever written when i was a child my sister and i used to buy them from jumble sales and sign them really extravagantly dear ella my most loved friend love jill (laughs) No, we did. They're all the books that are still in my parents' house. They're really extravagantly signed with these signatures in different bright gel pens. Did um did her signature have any consistency? No. No. Usually a heart over the eye. Just <laughs> <laughs> romance.
0: Which it must be very weird now because Jill Mansell is, um you know, she follows you on Twitter. She's like, she's just like a, a woman on Twitter who's very nice. And it must be weird that she's also like your childhood hero.
1: It's profoundly surreal and I don't like it at all. Okay. I mean, I like her very much, but also... Yeah. It's like whenever you meet someone who wrote something you really loved, you kind of want to be like, you don't, you're just a person. Yeah. <laughs> I love you, um, but I wish you were dead.
0: <laughs> so I could just enjoy your work and have fantasies about the kind of person you might be or might have been. I would really
1: like to make it clear that I don't wish John Mansell was dead. Okay. She's really nice. <laughs> She's really nice. And I think her work is the most important.
0: It's... Really gorgeous. This is my first Jill Mansell I've ever read. Um, I'm going to quickly summarise the plot because it's a bit of a complicated one and actually there are a lot of plot strands but I think I've got it narrowed down to a succinct thing. Okay. So, Millie, she's a 25-year-old woman, she witnesses the uh, near-suicide of a famous romance novelist called Orla Hart. And after... You know, saving her from this suicide attempt, she strikes up a friendship with Orla that kind of changes her life. Orla um, decides that she's going to base her next novel, a kind of realistic uh, rom com, on Millie's life. And she essentially starts paying Millie to be her muse. And at the same time, Millie meets uh, Hugh, who is a recent widower, and she strikes up a friendship with him. Only Hugh, because of his widowhood, or widowerhood, um, has decided that he is never going to fall in love again. And so throughout the novel, she goes on various dates. There's various schemes. There's lots of characters.
1: Um, but this is like the, would you say, this the basic tenets of the book? I think so. You, I think also it's important to note that she's doing all her heart, is writing this realistic novel because she's just got a bad review. She's yes. just had a really bad review that says that her plots aren't realistic mm-hmm. because she writes chick She writes really frothy novels about rich people having a lot of sex and a really good time. What's, what, what's really kind of interesting about that aspect of the novel
0: is that it's this really throughout the really, really meta sort of relationship that the author is having with the concept of books and publishing. And there's a lot of shade thrown on publishing in general. So that's why I chose it for this podcast. It's
1: basically a book about what is chiclet and who gets good reviews. Right. That is the very prominent subplot and subtext, really, of the whole book. Yeah. It's does writing these things make people happy? Does it make the author happy? Yeah. Is it rewarding to do these things? Does critical success mean more or less than commercial acclaim, I guess? Yeah. So
0: one of the reasons that Orla's life is in disarray um, is partly because her husband is cheating on her. And it's, it's very, because she's a very high-profile romance novelist, it's become kind of a tabloid item. And partly because her latest book has been absolutely slammed by an Irish writer <laughs> called... Carson. Christy Carson? Christy Carson, I called think. Called Christy Carson. And uh, yeah, so she gets this review that basically, yeah, as you said, her her plots are unrealistic, the writing is bad, all that kind of stuff. And her reaction to that is, it's you really feel for Orla because it's, it's very much... Um, no, like these books take time like look at my there's a moment where Millie's in her study and she's like look at my research look at all my characters look at all these plot threads look at the planning that goes into this and it really feels like Jill Mansell talking to her her own critics maybe or the kind of snobbery she might have brushed up against in the industry being like I work really hard
1: and this makes people happy and like fuck you if you don't like it but the thing is, it, it could start off as a fuck you, but it sort of doesn't end up as a fuck you. Yeah. Because she ends up writing a much better book that she's tried really hard on. Yeah. And Christy Carson says to her at the end, I like your books. You just weren't trying with that last one. You've got lazy. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about Chicklet as being very simple. And it never is. Or at least the ones I like aren't. Yeah. OK, maybe there's always a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's always a nice romance. There's always a nice romance. But what happens in the books isn't simple. I mean, trying to explain the plot of this. I really wanted to keep jumping in to interrupt you, to be like, but also Hester. Yes, but also Hester. But also also her her parents, who have a very complicated relationship. Her parents and their weird relationship where they're divorced, but kind of happy. And also her boss. Her boss and her boss's wife and their weird codependent marriage
0: that pops up often. What's interesting about this, so like, I mean... I'd love to talk about the kind of packaging of, of rom-coms and Chiclet in general, is that I'm looking at the book in front of me now. It's called Millie's Fling. The tagline is, he's the best thing that ever happened to her. He's also the worst. He's Millie's Fling. Um, which doesn't really encompass how, she feels about, how Millie feels about Hugh or what the book is about. Because the book is actually about this large community of people who live in Newquay in, in Cornwall who are just having relationships and problems with each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, the tagline's I don't remember them being on the editions I had as a teenager because they you know, never really had any covers. You know how it is when you buy a book from a jumble sale. Yeah, yeah, the cover's ripped off. <laughs> covers ripped off. Like, you never really know what happens at the end because you probably lost the last four pages. <laughs> yeah. You just assume there's kissing. And then there's just like, marker on the end the last few yeah. pages. <laughs> just, like, marker and Scrabble scores. So you've got, like, the newer covers or whatever. I yeah. expect to see what they used to have was, like, bright colours and it was always pair of women's legs yes just a leg like and like kicked shoe. up kicked up in their heels <laughs> yes. lying on a sofa or a bed yeah. or like a sun lounger thing mm-hmm. always with the heels just kicked up casually yeah and so the taglines i'm always like nothing to do with me nothing yeah to do with well, my nothing, this nothing to do with it at all like is he the best thing that ever happened to her you don't get that sense no maybe hester's the best thing that ever happened to her maybe her dad is the best thing her stepmom right and like to go, to go back
0: to what you were saying a minute ago. You're so right in thinking that like, people do think that Chiclet is very simple and they make fun of the tropes in Chiclet as a way of saying, oh, and they're so formulaic. They, oh, boy meets girl. They break up for a bit. They get back together or whatever. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't take into account. Like sci-fi has tropes. Fantasy has tropes. Thrillers have tropes. But nobody really
1: dumps on those things. Do you know what I mean? I think they do dump on them, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. I think there's almost a like a cultural cachet to tropes in sci-fi and things like that.
0: Yes. I think, People like are proud of themselves for recognizing them almost.
1: Yeah. And I, I but I think we don't really talk about the tropes of, the tropes of chiclet are not the trope not the things I love about chiclet. It's just the frame. Kind of. But like if I were going for tropes, I'd go for some kind of crisp based snack. Yes. There's a lot of specific <laughs> snacking in chiclet. And I think that's one of the truly so, so important true. things. Like in this book, there's a whole passage where they're talking about how Hester, who is Billy's roommate, has kind of broken up but not really broken up with her boyfriend who lives in Glasgow and she's got this crush on this other guy she's had for 10 years and Hester has eaten a whole tub of past their cell by date Twiglets mm-hmm. and Minnie comes home and is like there are no more Twiglets I have chipsticks but we all know they're not the same thing and there's just this lovely paragraph about ranking snacks yeah. In terms of how they make you feel and how you can get through things with specific kind of crisp-based snacks. And that, for me, is a real trope of this kind of writing is specific snacking. Completely. Specific snacking is so important. Like, uh,
0: we talked about this off-air a little bit, but, um, you know, Jill Mansell was your sort of, um your big person growing up, but Marion Keyes was mine and we're doing her in a separate podcast. But, like... Uh, There's a scene in one of Marion's books called Rachel's Holiday where all these people are in rehab. And it is, like, it is not a jolly rehab place. Like, there are people who have, like, been abused as children. There are people who are, like, you know, suppressing their homosexuality, all kind of stuff. And they're all just sitting around talking about, like, Yorkies versus bounties and Myers versus Snickers and stuff. And there's, like, all Chiclet does come back to snacking.
1: And it's so great. I love it. There's a bit in Millie's Fling and... A huge part of what attracts her to Hugh, apart from the fact he is the most good looking man in the world and very funny. Yes. Is when she's helping him unpack his shopping. (gasps) Yes. And she just lists everything.
0: Every single thing in his shopping bag while she's putting it into his fridge.
1: Ah, yeah. Downstairs, Millie helps him to unpack the carriers and put away the food. To her relief, she approved of almost everything he'd bought, especially the litre-sized carton of Rookham Farm hazelnut ice cream. Happily, Millie loaded the fridge with unsalted lurpak, free-range eggs, cambozola, fresh (laughs) parmesan, and she was also pleased to see cherry tomatoes, posh loo rolls, jersey royals, and two bottles of fitou. Definitely a man after her own heart. No economy-sized tins of marrow-fat peas, thankfully, or horrible pies made from dog meat masquerading as steak and kidney, or, worst of all, prawn cocktail-flavoured crisps. And it's like, that is a man I could get on board with. (laughs) I feel like it's really important to say at this juncture that I based all of my early food tastes on what it would be like to be a grown-up from Jill Mansell novels. Mm -hmm. My favourite wine, I started drinking because it is the favourite wine of a character called Maggie in, I think, a Jill Mansell book called Staying at Daisies. Okay. What's the wine? It's called Montepulciano. You've had it. It's really nice.
0: It is nice. (laughs) But I I, I thought you were just being like a tasteful person.
1: No, I get it all from what the elegant characters drink in Jill Mansell novels. Oh my God. Everything I know about wine comes from what the like sexy grown up ladies yeah. buy in Jill Mansell novels
0: yeah also cheese the one thing I'm, I don't feel great about is the unsalted butter I'm like come
1: on now unsalted yeah. love bag it's a bit odd isn't it
0: it's a bit it's a real misnomer in there give me like he seems like a seems like a Gary Gold kind of man a Gary Gold guy which brings us <laughs> <laughs> the thing I really want to talk about the most let's talk about Ireland Go on I want to talk about Ireland in this book and Jill Mansell's treatment of the Irish characters and um I know like, when an Irish person says that about like what an English person has done with their characters, it's about them to be like, oh, she's gotten it wrong or she's been stereotypical. She has got it on the nose. She <laughs> writes specific kinds of um, people who work in literature or who are writers in Ireland and how people respond to them in such a perfect way. So I've actually written this down. Um, so the kind of main antagonist for Orla in the book is this guy, Christy Carson. And he writes this terrible review of her and uh, she's kind of looking at his face in the paper and he's like this like really dishevelled Irish guy. And she says to Millie, he's one of the new Irish writers forever banging on about literature and integrity and truth. and <laughs> And that is... I have this thing about how Irish writers are treated in the UK press because we're sort of treated like kind of adorable pets from the colonial backwater who say like simple things that are actually very profound. It's a bit like um, it's kind of comparative to in American literature when they do um, what they call the magical Negro trope where they're like oh like just a, the black janitor just says something amazing even though it sounds simple and it's about a stew and putting enough seasons in the stew actually it means a lot about life and that's um, how you get um, English press talking about Irish writing a lot and that is totally what that Irish writer character is like he's like oh, or he's painted
1: to be like you know what I mean? Well there's the bit, a bit later on when she's just been given the proof copy because press being what they are they yeah. would like her to review his book now yes and her husband, her horrible cheating husband, says to her, "What's the book like?" and she says, "Very Irish, jaunty, but at the same time profound
0: exact that is every book about Ireland ever as in terms of how it's like how it's marketed, how it's reviewed it's like ja- jaunty but profound it's the whole thing and I loved that It's a really interesting look at how publishing and how the world at large treats Certain books by certain people. So Christy Carson ends up getting like author of the year award at this at this um, big award
1: ceremony at the end. And that's a thing that happens. That's, that's, that's a, thing. a thing. Big, big glitzy award ceremonies for people who write books. <laughs> oh, they happen. <laughs> when? I want 1998,
0: one. I guess. 1998. Yeah. So he, he gets this big award for being like, oh, God, you know, the, the jaunty Irish writer who's the... Um, du at the moment which is interesting considering a jaunty Irish writer just got the man Booker Prize <laughs> and and then and she's like this, inc- and then she's incredibly glamorous and like she's treated a certain way and he's treated a certain but way but then I think they
1: really get into that don't they at the end yeah. where they're talking about the author photographs Do
0: oh yes what did I say so again
1: the gist is this is a spoiler but all of this yeah. is a spoiler so Orla meets Christy Carson they fancy each other a lot she doesn't know it's Christy Carson because he's had a haircut <laughs> that's true yeah and he says, my mother my mother made me spruce myself up. Yeah. So here I am, well and truly spruced. A line which I think about all the time. Well and truly spruced. Well and truly spruced. And she, she asks him, why in your author portrait do you look so awful? Why do you have so much hair? Why do you look so dirty? Mm-hmm. And he says to her something like, when you have your author pictures taken, you have a makeup artist, maybe even a stylist, you have a hairdresser, you have a bunch of people with lights who want to make you look your best. That's what the people want from you. And this is what the people want from me. Yeah. But in my daily life, I have a haircut and I wash my face. Totally. People want like
0: integrity. And and the translation of that is somebody who was grizzled, somebody who's reclusive, somebody who is um, uh, sort of talked about in the press as if they kind of come down from the mountains once a year to give one interview and then go back. And then she's quite astounded to see that he's just a normal, nice guy
1: who loves having a chat and a drink. Yeah, which I think for me makes the picture of Christy Carson much more nuanced because the one you have all through the book is... Christy Carson writes these big literary books. Yeah, He comes down from the mountain once a year with his beard everywhere to say nasty things about glamorous, sexy lady novelists. Mm-hmm. And then you meet him at the end and he says, no, I like books by lady novelists. I like lots of your books. This one was bad because you didn't yeah. try and you'd got bored and formulaic. Mm-hmm. We're back to everything being much more nuanced than people think. Right?
0: Like, And it's interesting because people do... They treat the whole genre as being a formula, don't they? And then... And then when you get into it, it's much more complicated. But let's talk about Hugh. I'm very interested in your thoughts on Hugh. He's kind of nothing. He's right? just nothing. And also disappears for large swathes of the book. He's riddled with guilt. Yeah. So Hugh's story is that, so he's like 28, I'm going to say? He's 28. He's 28. And um, how they meet is actually interesting. So why don't you tell us about that? How they meet is she,
1: they're on a night out and she finds his wallet in a hedge. Her and Esther. Hester? Hester. Her and Hester. She's on a night out with her flatmate. Her flatmate takes off her heels and throws them into a hedge. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, the thing. Yeah. Which I, is like a quirk about Hester, which is just really
0: nice. And we all know that girl who like gets so tired of walking in her heels she'll just like throw her heels anywhere. Like there's like a real nice madness to her that I thought was I
1: think you really get a sense of who Hester is from the yeah. minute she takes her shoes off and chucks them in a hedge. Exactly. That's like a shorthand for who this person is. Yeah. But anyway, go on. Wallet. Um, yeah. She finds the wallet. In the wallet, she finds a picture of Hugh and his wife, Louisa, Mm -hmm. and his phone number. She calls him. And I reread this section today. And it's weird. It's a weird thing to do. Yeah. Well, they are pissed, I think, aren't they? They are, but it's still weird. So she rings him up and says, you remember me from the club last month. Yeah. I'm pregnant with your baby. Mm -hmm. You've been cheating on your wife. And he says, my wife's been dead for eight months. Mm -hmm. Don't call me again. The worst thing that could ever happen,
0: like the worst thing that could happen out of a prank call is, hello, my wife's dead.
1: And that is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's one way to meet a man. <laughs> but then she's wracked with guilt. Then she's wracked with guilt. So what she does is ring him again. <laughs> Instead of just like burying it deep within her soul and blushing every time she thinks about it. What she does is ring him again and put on a Scottish accent. Yeah, it's weird. And get him to do crossword. <laughs> yeah, she brings pret- she
0: she rings up with a Scottish. Uh, Pretends to be an old woman who is <laughs> Scottish, and old she's man, like old man, an old man, and he's like, oh, hello, I'm I'm looking to to do. I can't do a Scottish accents. I'm looking for five down, three across, or whatever. And they kind of do this crossword thing for about five minutes. And he's like, you're that girl. Your number has come up,
1: <laughs> but he like still engages her with it because he's just quite lonely, you know. I think so. And he does want people to talk to. And you get Where are Hugh's friends? Where are Hugh Hugh's has friends? No friends, no relations. He just has this incredibly beautiful dead wife. Yeah. To whom he feels incredibly married still.
0: Yeah. Which makes complete sense. It's been eight months. And so in response to so he lived in London and in response to his wife dying, he upsticks sticks and moved to Cornwall. And then they start going on this, friend. they start having this friendship, but he's very clear from the first, he's like, I would I love being your friend. Clearly we fancy each other, but I have made the conscious decision to never fall in love again or never meet anyone again or never anything else. And Millie's like, fine. <laughs> it's very clear from the offset that like,
1: they don't, neither of them quite buys into this, right? Yeah, I don't think Hugh buys into it. He fancies her, right from yeah. the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then he, every time, has to disappear for weeks and weeks. Yeah, they have a moment and he's like, ah, goodbye. Which, you know, it's not that far off most men with some kind of depression or guilt or shame. Mm-hmm. Men. Men. <laughs> but he disappears for weeks and he disappears from the novel as well. Yeah, because it is, a, it is a, a novel that jumps heads a
0: lot, right? As in you get like Millie's perspective for a while and then you get Hester's perspective for a while. But yeah, he just, he completely falls out of the novel, like almost like Mansell has sort of forgotten about him.
1: But maybe he's just not doing very much. <laughs> and that's why I do. I really like that you get... Oh, let's have a bit of Hester and Lucas now. Mm-hmm. Lucas is a bad boy back in town who everyone had a crush on when they were at school. But he's actually quite a good guy. He's secretly a
0: nice guy. Um, I hated Lucas so much. Did you? And even him being redeemed, I thought it was still creepy and awful. So when we first meet Lucas, he undoes Millie's bra in a bar... Because that's what we do when we were in our 20s. We go up to girls we know from school and we snap their bra open.
1: I think oh, that's meant to be part of it. leather trousers. The leather trousers. We'll get back to the clothes in this novel. Yeah. I want to talk about the suede dress. Should we just talk about the clothes right now? Let's talk about the clothes. We'll come back to Lucas. <sighs>
0: Lucas wears leather trousers all the time. This book was written in 2001.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lucas is sexy and dangerous. A yeah. sexy, dangerous bad boy... Wears leather. Okay, fine.
0: Orla wears only purple. Orla is the shop monsoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's just jewel colours, purple and smoking,
1: which I think is a very Jill Mansell thing. Mm-hmm. If you look at her author pictures, yeah, and you look at her website, a couple of years ago she wrote like a book, very short book for charity about things she loves. Okay, and it's all jewel colours and wafty fabrics yeah. and having a very beautiful, shining time. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. I love that. But also, I have a problem. Yes. My problem is, Orla buys Millie a very expensive champagne suede dress. Dolce & Gabbana, I believe. Dolce & Gabbana. Yeah. Very short. Yeah, a mini Maybe dress. Millie wears this a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> she loves it, yeah. She never gets it dry cleaned. Oh,
0: and this is very much the kind of book that you would deal with dry cleaning in.
1: You yes, know? and it feels... You know, this book deals with people having a wee all the time. Yeah, yeah. Having people baths, eating toast. You hear, Like, there's so
0: much toast. I ate so much toast in the reading of this novel. But yeah, she never gets it dry cleaned. And that is a misstep. And she wears it to the book awards.
1: And also, at the end, she gets chocolate all over her white jeans. Yeah. And won't wear them. She mm-hmm. can't wear her champagne dress again. No. So she goes on an open-top bus tour. Yeah. Wearing a lilac heavy silk nighty, that is somehow transparent. She's 25. And she's just going around in a lilac silk.
0: There's weird clothes and interior design choices. I love the interior design choices very much. We might have to fight about the interior design choices. Let's fight about the interior design choices. (laughs) there's one point, so at one point um, Lucas, the bad boy who's becoming good, um, decides that he's going to open a restaurant. And essentially it's like bright blue walls, floor-length mustard uh, curtains and huge chandeliers. (laughs) And... What is that room? That room is a panic
1: attack. That is... like There are, in all of Jill Mansell's books, there are very detailed descriptions of the rooms after they've been redecorated. What do you think that's about? I don't know, but I love it. <laughs> all I really want to read, as you know, as we've uh-huh. discussed at length, mm-hmm. off air. Yeah, off air, if you will. If you will. Is a very detailed description of clothes and things. Yeah. One reason I love Jill Mansell is that no one ever kicks off their shoes. They kick off a strappy violet sandal. Yeah, that's true. And that's very important to me.
0: Yeah. What I really like in general, with the exception of Orla, everybody's got really small jobs. Should know I mean? Like Millie works in a travel agent and she loves working in a travel agents. She like doesn't there's never
1: a part where she's like, Oh, I wish I was a, a journalist or I wish I was a Yeah, there's no whatever. desire for a big, flashy life. Yeah. And they go to London and everyone's like, wow, London's horrible. They're completely, they're completely horrible. Let's go home to Cornwall now. There's a bit where Hester, they talk about Hester's job and Hester sells earrings on a market. Yeah. And they're very clear. These earrings are mostly horrible. (laughs) The book is, I can't remember, they say something like occasionally tasteful earrings. The phrase is something like that. And you get such a clear idea of what Hester is like. Mm hmm. And there's a bit where a teenager is trying on the earrings and she can't decide between some with yellow sequins or red dangly feathers. And they sound like the worst earrings in the world. And yeah. You get a real sense that Jill Mansell believes that.
0: <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. And like, it's very much that sort of small seaside business kind of thing where it's like it gets enough teenagers plus people passing through looking to buy something for their friend to like just about stay afloat.
1: Yeah. There's a real awareness in this book also that there are no jobs in Cornwall. Yeah. There are lots of jobs in summer that require no skill and are very, very boring and underpaid. Mm-hmm. Which, there are so few books. They're just like, yeah, this is the economic reality. Um, we're all having a good time or a bad time. We're all having lives. Yeah, because most books, either it's like someone's like a flashy, a magazine
0: editor or something like that, or they work in music or something to that effect. Or they have a nameless office job whereby the character disappears for a while and then comes back from the
1: office job she came home from work ha, Yeah, finally we never find
0: out what work is and the book is 600 pages long do you know what I mean or like sometimes they'll be like oh my terrible boss but this is very like like service industry jobs tourist level jobs and what's interesting is because why the, Orla wants to be around Millie because as she says to her at one point and this really ho- like pisses off Millie is like I want to write books about people with normal jobs and cheap shoes and it's complete it's so condescending and it really annoys Millie but because she's like a nice person who wants to give this weirdo the benefit of the doubt she's like okay I like my cheap shoes but alright but then it comes
1: up for the next five pages mm-hmm. every time someone's got shoes on Millie's like cheap shoes yeah. not cheap shoes for you is it? yeah it's like Millie's like led her life in a
0: unquestioning way until somebody has come in and sort of made her question it a bit and but also not in a positive way in like uh, well fuck you
1: lady I like my cheap shoes yeah, you know and they're fine Millie's fine Millie's fine Millie is fine Millie is completely fine and I think that's what I like about this book is that broadly speaking everyone's alright yeah yes Hugh's lost his wife and he's having some trouble with that as one might mm-hmm. and yes all his husband is cheating on her and yes Nat who is uh, Hester the roommate's long term boyfriend who's currently in Glasgow learning to be a chef mm-hmm. might be cheating on her but she also might be cheating on him she wants to cheat on him yeah And, you know, Millie's parents have been divorced and Millie's dad is married again to an amazing lady who is the best character in the book. We'll come back to her. Oh, I love her. Everyone's got their own problems at varying levels of severity, but they're all getting on with it. There's a very matter of fact attitude to, yes, life has death in it. It also has Twiglets. Not to keep coming back to Twiglets.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at one point there's a character who... um I can't remember his name but he's a West End actor who's very very handsome and he How can you have forgotten his oh, name? Oh it's Ben Devereaux or something? Con Devereaux Con, Con Devereux. Devereux. Very very handsome West End actor who um, uh, Orla wants to set up with Millie and then it turns out that he is gay but he cannot reveal he is gay because his mother has a brain tumour And is dying And is dying and will be dead soon and uh, therefore he wants to sort of preserve the idea of heterosexuality until she dies and Millie is kind of his, his beard, essentially.
1: And everyone's fine with it. And everyone's
0: fi- Everyone's like, well, that is sad. Some people are travel agents, some people have brain tumours. Do you know what I mean? It's
1: very, very normalisation of that kind of thing. But that is what life is like, you know? Yeah. And Millie tries to say to Con, I'm sure they'd love you no matter what. You don't have to live a life for the rest of your life. And he says, no, I just have to live a life for the rest of hers. Yeah. It's this very odd moment where it's not his story. And he's fine with it not being... Yeah. The Condévoir story. He's just, this is what it has to be. And then at the end, he has this boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Remember, it comes up really briefly at the award ceremony. Oh, he's yes, seeing yes. he's seeing this guy called Joe, mm-hmm. and he's really pleased because it means that he can tell his mum all the nice things they're doing together, and she doesn't get upset because she thinks it's short for Josephine, and he's not upset because he's got a nice boyfriend. Oh. And it's just like we make compromises in we life. life. We do. We try is our best. <laughs> we try our best to help the people we love. Yeah. And, you know, even Hugh, who is a big nothing, as discussed, a big, sexy, handsome nothing.
0: Yeah. He's just trying his best. He likes crosswords. That's his whole, his whole personality is that he does crosswords and knows computers.
1: It's an odd combination for a romantic
0: hero. It is. An incredibly he, sexy man who knows computers. He does a lot of IT. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of information in him just doing day-to-day IT. It's very, like, I know people lean on this comparison a lot, but it's kind of like ASMR in a way, some of the events, because it's like just cosy moving from everyday event to everyday event and then a big plot twist happens, but then you're back
1: to your everyday event and your everyday event. It is so soothing to read books where nothing much happens, except that, of course, everything happens because that's what life is like. Yeah. You know, you fall in love, people die. That's how it goes. But also, toast and you lose your job and your parents are
2: fighting again
1: and you love your stepmum and your mum is a bit of a pain and... I think, okay, I really want to dedicate like a proper
0: chunk to the parents plus the stepmother. What a great dynamic. Such a good dynamic. Please explain to our listeners. Millie's parents have been divorced for a long time because um, her mother, Adele, is like a social climber who badly wants to meet somebody who works in opera or she who likes opera, opera. Or she dreams of... She's a Cornish woman who's dreamt of like glitzy, Bridget jones type London. And she's also like 55. And that's a hard thing to get at that age but she's really trying for it in a really earnest
1: way. She wants to go to Tuscany because she's heard that famous people go there. Yeah. Why hasn't And then there's this bit where she learns about Tuscany and she's like, "Why didn't I think of this before? Obviously, I will go to Tuscany." And you know what? She never goes to Tuscany. No, she just talks she about it a lot. She never even finds out in what country it's in. <laughs> no. She never finds out what country Tuscany is in. She just knows it's yeah. where they drink expensive wine and film stars go.
0: And in, in a way, she's kind of... There's it's it's really l- very little in the way of villainy in the book. Like, most people are mostly all right. Like, there obviously is, like, tension. But, like, if any... Like, she is kind of painted in a sort of villainous way sometimes because she's a climber and because she's not very nice to Millie. And she also invites herself back into her ex-husband's home with her ex-husband's new wife because she just wants to stay there for a
1: bit until she finds a husband. Which I think is lovely. So, the dad, mm-hmm. who... They've split up, as discussed, because Millie's mum loves opera and London and wants to be glamorous. And Millie's dad is kind of this regular man. Yeah. He's a regular man. man. I don't think we learn anything about him at all. What we do learn, though, is that he's married to this amazing woman, Judy. 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 Judy, Judy. She's really nice. She's really sensible. And very rich. She's very rich. She doesn't mind having her husband's ex-wife to stay because... She says that, oh, he lets me have boring relatives to stay frequently and never complains. So the least I can do is have your mother to stay, Millie, even though she complains all the time.
0: And, like, I love how she was introduced as, like... I think, what what Joe Mantle's really good at is, like, being able to sum up an entire character with one sentence or one action. And she said, I think it was something like, um, she has dogs and has one lipstick in her bag in case of emergencies. And I'm like, oh, I know exactly who that woman is. Like, <laughs> country lady loves her dogs. Um, or will willing to brush her hair in a car mirror if, like, something's happening. But other
1: than that, like, no, you know? Not arsed. Don't care. There's an amazing bit where Millie is driving down to see them for... Dinner, mm-hmm. and she's just saying that her mother would never have let cooking like this happen, but that Judy cooks with a cigarette and is just like always stirring some enormous brown stew yeah. that is delicious and all butter, butter, all salt, all fat. Yeah, I just love Judy. She's so understanding. Even when her car gets keyed,
0: her car gets keyed
1: with like horrible words. <laughs> One of the other
0: things, there's really there's wheels within wheels, and it's not really a story about Millie so much as it is
1: a larger story about everyone Millie knows and what they do all day. What's really interesting, actually, is it kind of goes back to that description of how all Hart heart writes her books. She's got yeah. loads of threads. She's got loads. She's got threads. She's got felt tips in different colours. The yeah. threads all they spin it orbit around one person, and that's exactly what Millie's fling is. It's you've got Millie in the middle, mm-hmm. and then out from Millie, you've got her boss and her boss's wife. They have their own storyline, which intersects with Millie's mother's storyline, which interacts with Millie's father and Millie's stepmom. And then you've also got Hester, her flatmate, who's got a lot of feelings about a boy they used to go to school with, but also has this boyfriend in Glasgow who's also got feelings about this TV executive he might be or may may or may not be having an affair with. Mm -hmm. I haven't even got into Hugh and Hugh's feelings about his ex-wife and Hugh's next-door neighbour. Oh, and like, Orla's publisher. Yes. Who's got the wife with the brain tumour and the son who's in the West End. And these people are all just kind of... Working it out, you know? They're like, all just working it out. They just spin in circles and you get a little bit of their story here and a little bit of story there. And the thing I love about Jill Mansler, is she wraps it all up. Right? Every, every
0: story capped off. And the thing is, if this were a different kind of novel, if this were written within a different genre, if we had like, we're focusing on a new key community um, whereby the main thrust is that like a, a blow-in uh, novelist, romance novelist, is manipulating a girl to control her love life and create, you know, storylines for her and setting her up on these weird dates and all that kind of stuff. It's like, that could be, like, a really, like, Gillian Flynn-esque kind That's of... That's
1: just who I was thinking of. Yeah. Gillian quite, Flynn thriller. Yeah. Which, weirdly, is the kind of commercial women's fiction we have now. That is so true. I wonder where we'll be in ten years. Yeah. I wonder so what this it, plot like, of woman manipulates other women.
0: Yeah, because that, that is what the plot is, but because everybody is so nice and game and sort of cheerful and blonde and happy... But um, Millie does need money. Millie Yeah, she's paid five grand from Orla just to live her life and to report back to Orla. The
1: interesting thing is though, Millie lies. Millie lies. She doesn't ever tell Orla about Hugh and this Why really do you think shocks that is. Hugh. I don't know, she says to Hugh it's because she thought it was nothing and then she thought that Hugh wouldn't want to be involved. Yeah, she's Which, very respectful of because
0: she's like, well no, because you're a widower and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna sell your story to this but, woman.
1: But she's happy to sell everyone else. She sells the gardener down the river, he kisses like an aquavac, another very specific yeah. Also, Millie's not that nice. She's nice, but also she goes on one date with this gardener mm-hmm. who, let's be clear, Orla has hired yeah. as love interest. Yeah, she she has hired a hot gardener to go
0: out with her. This is where it could be a Gillian Flynn novel. She has basically orchestrated a romance where there is no
1: chemistry because she wants something to happen and it's very strange. Yeah, and she and, says to Millie, something has, you have to have a romance. All this stuff about your friends is great, but something has to happen to you first. That's why I'm paying you. Yeah. So it's it's sex work is what it is. Yeah, I mean it's not. <laughs> it's not part of what
0: a famous novelist pays you to go out with somebody. <laughs> it's an odd plot, let's yeah. be clear.
1: But you never ever think that it's odd when you're reading it. Yeah, it feels it feels very natural. Like, of course, yeah. That of course happens you have five grand now to go on a date. You get fired because a woman you saved from a suicide attempt, which is never discussed again. No. The, her suicidal tendencies are fairly are just sort of abandoned then. She writes a lot of elaborate suicide notes and then decides not to do it. Yeah. First page, basically. First page. Largely because she hasn't made a will. Mm-hmm. Do you know what we've not talked about at all? What? I, I'm, just, I'm just sitting here thinking about what a weird novel this will sound to anyone. The Kissagram Company. That is so weird. And it's so
0: 90s or kind of 80s even. Like, Do Kissagrams still happen? How frequent were they anyway? I wasn't really sure even what they were when I was reading this novel. So Lucas the bad boy with the leather trousers who Hester has a crush on, sets up a kissogram company where essentially people are paid to go like and kiss people at work and sing songs at them and sing rhymes at them and be like, Oh, it's your anniversary. Today you are a doctor. I am in a
1: monkey suit. <laughs> because yes, it's kind of kissogram. But also Millie refuses refuses to do any nudity. Yeah. So she's just a gorilla. On roller skates. Yeah. For a lot of the book.
0: Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't really know why. It comes in at the end, sort of, because... Um, kind of. Hugh sees Hester in the gorilla suit and
1: he thinks it's her and it's like a big misunderstanding or whatever. I think it's very romantic when he... He rings... He, so Hugh... Does he ring Millie up? No, he goes mm-hmm. to London mm-hmm. and he says to Millie that she was right, that he needed to get over his dead wife. Mm-hmm. Bah, bah, bah. Get over your dead wife already. It's been eight months. (laughs) God, move on, Hugh. Eight bloody months. Eight months. Come on, pick it up. (laughs) Why aren't you shagging? Which is the gist of what everyone's been gently saying to him throughout the novel. Anyway, he turns up, says, you were right. Should have got over her quicker. (laughs) My wife who died suddenly. (laughs) My wife who died suddenly. And Millie says, yes, yes, you should. You should. I'm glad you've agreed with me. And then he says, yes, and I've fallen for someone else. And I drove to her house this morning to tell her. And Millie is so sad. She's like, okay. <laughs> you came to London to tell, to tell me, that. me that? that you're in love with someone else. And he says she was wearing her gorilla suit at the time, but it turned out yeah. she'd lent it to her best friend. Which is basically how he says to her, I love you. It's very it's sweet. I've told someone that I love them and I thought it was you, but it wasn't.
0: <laughs> it's very, yeah, very round
1: the house's way of telling someone that you love them. And I liked it a lot. I love it. I love it completely. Mm -hmm. It's the most romantic thing anyone could do is uh, propose to someone else in a gorilla suit. Yeah, I think it is. (laughs) Um,
0: At the beginning of the book, I've I've kind of totally forgotten the reason why Millie sees Orla is because uh, she is breaking up with her boyfriend
1: or or he's proposing to her or asking to move in with her. he's not proposing. He's asking her to move in with her. For which he has driven her to a well-known suicide spot. (laughs) That's what men do. That's what men do. When they love you. And she doesn't want to, for, you know, obvious reasons. The reason being, she doesn't love him and she thinks he's boring. Another weird thing is that later on, she explains why she went out with Neil in the first place. Mm -hmm. And she says, I watched a documentary where a really happy Muslim lady said that arranged marriages had been better for her them falling in love and that love should be allowed to build gradually and I thought I should give that a go.
0: <laughs> it's, yeah, she said, she says, um, I think the problem in the past has been I've had too much mutual attraction to the men I've been going out with. So I went out with somebody who I wasn't remotely attracted to and it ended up badly.
1: It's a choice. It's a choice. I don't know, actually. There's quite a lot in these in this book, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, uh-huh. about you're not attracted to someone you want to be Yeah. and being attracted to someone you don't want to be. So, Hugh's yeah. whole problem is he doesn't want to be attracted to anyone because fancying Millie makes him feel like he's cheating on his dead wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Something about Hugh,
0: and we, Hugh is a bit of a nothing, and that's okay because there are so many somethings in this novel that maybe you need a couple of wall, wallflowers. He says something, he's talking to Orla about his dead wife, and uh, he says, You know, she's driving me crazy. She would like always get mascara all over the mirror. And she says, I bet you'd do anything to clear that mascara off now. And he said, No, actually, it was really annoying. I miss her, but there were still things wrong with her. Um, Like it's—it's when you really get the sense that he is like—it's a really neat way of showing that this person is healing, that he's not romanticizing anything anymore. He's just like beginning to see his dead wife as a as a person, you know, and like a person he can potentially move on from. He's like, no, I don't wish I could clean up her mess because she was messy and it pissed me off, you know. Yeah, no,
1: I think it's a really good way of showing grief and the way grief interacts with things and the way grief makes you crazy in lots of ways. Because he is crazy. Hugh is crazy at a bunch of points in this novel. He does completely pointless things for no reason. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's a very realistic portrayal of grief, you know?
0: Yeah, in the way that he sort of upsticks and doesn't really talk to people from his life.
1: I mean, that explains why he has no friends.
0: Yeah, I think he's just made that choice to be like, you know what, I'm moving to Cornwall. And talking to a girl I don't them. know about crosswords.
1: You're not allowed to make any big decisions in the first year. That's the rule. Is it? The rule is you can't make any big decisions in the first year after your partner has died. Oh well, he's fucked. He's that. an idiot. He's completely fucked it.
0: Oh, that's what I know. I really feel like that they probably will have a nice relationship, but I don't know if they're going to end up together. <sighs> it's, it's hard I think to he's see not processed together. it properly. I don't think he's
1: had the right help. No, his help seems to consist of designing websites for a very nice deli. <laughs> yeah. That's a big bit as well. He's designing a their website orders, for a deli. Their orders are up by 30%, Caroline. <laughs> that is huge. From Just from his redesign of their website. Yeah. It sounded like a really
0: good deli, though. Like lots, I've really imagined all the dried meats and the cheeses and jams and things.
1: I mean, the thing is, even this conversation, the one we were just talking about where she says oh, I bet you'd give anything to clean the mirror again. And he says, yeah. absolutely not. They're just eating a lot of Parma ham.
2: <laughs> do, you want, do you want to read it?
1: Okay. Over lunch in the conservatory, they talked mainly about Giles. There are good points, Ola confided, twiddling a slice of wafer-thin Parma ham onto her fork. Not having to miss the programmes I want to watch on the telly because he's glued to Sky Sports. And I don't have to listen to him going on and on about bloody golf. I don't have to pretend to be interested anymore when he tells me how he decided to use his eight iron on the 17th hole instead of a six iron like Doogie Plumley Pemberton. And there's nobody to tell me off if I eat crisps, crisps in bed or leave the top off the shampoo bottle or get marmalade on the Sunday Times. Abruptly, Orla stopped herself. Reaching across the table to clasp Hugh's hand, she shook her head, mortified. God, you must want to slap for me. Talk about insensitive. I am so sorry. Smiling, Hugh moved the bowl of tarragon mayonnaise to a place of safety. Tarragon mayonnaise. I mean, and it goes on. Yeah. But all this stuff about, yes, I've thrown my husband out because he was persistently cheating on me, but, you know, that isn't all bad. Yeah. This terrible thing has good points. And also, tarragon mayonnaise and parma ham. And do you miss everything about your dead wife? No, not everything. Great. (laughs) It's a very common sense book. I it like... is.
0: It really reminds me of, as you know, I'm a massive fan of the writer Elizabeth Gilbert. And I heard her talking recently about her her dead partner and she was saying, um, you know, and even in the worst of it, there's still that thing that there's a life I, could, I had with Rhea and there's a life I am now not having with Rhea. And that is, there are things in that life I don't get to have, you know, and I, I didn't get to have otherwise. And that's, and there's something in that, you know, and I just don't think that that is ever discussed within the whole language of grief.
1: I find it a very... I've said this already, but a very realistic portrayal of grief. Yeah. And I have found it immensely helpful, actually, to reread this book and be mm-hmm. like, huh. grief is complicated, but fine. Yeah. Love is complicated, but fine. Isn't it nice to have a range of specific specific snacks? <laughs> and those, I think, are the kind of... the three main lessons of John Manson. It truly truly is. That is
0: a real summation. You should write the foreword for her next one.
1: (laughs) Grief is hard but fine. Love, hard but fine. And specific snacks. Very good. Specific, specific snacks. And also, I think really the key motto of lots of Jill Mansell's books is that, you know what I'm going to say, I say it a lot, but it's nice to have a friend. It's nice to have
0: a friend. (laughs) Is for the listeners, something that uh, when me and Elle are hanging out, which is most days we just like, we'll often just like take each other's hand and just go, it's
1: nice to have a friend. (laughs) It is nice to have a friend. And I... We've been saying it for three years. (laughs) I think it started because you said that everything I wrote was really an expansion on the theme of it's nice to have Have a a friend. And you know what? It is nice to have a friend. And Jill Mansell is all about friends. Yeah. This novel is about Ola having friends. Yeah. Ola, who doesn't appear to have anybody in her life. And even when she's inviting people to her party... And Millie says to her, But this is really short notice, why will these people come to a party? And Giles says, Because she's all a heart. Yeah. And there's no acknowledgement that that is a devastatingly sad thing. Why will these people come to your party because you're famous?
0: Yeah, you're rich and famous and there'll be good drink and yeah. Even Giles doesn't believe that anyone could truly like his wife. Because he doesn't like her. And that's re- their relationship is very sad that way.
1: It truly is. <laughs> A lot sadder than Hugh Hugh's not that sad Hugh's just cross
0: yeah cross cross widow -er. so uh, let's end on should people read Millie's Fling and what they should read after Millie's Fling if they've already read it
1: they should read everything Jill Mansell has ever written (laughs) starting from the beginning I mean this is the lovely thing is that I really started from the beginning Fast Friends I think is Jill Mansell's first novel Mm -hmm. I can quote most of it by heart that's what you should read next. you should read Fast Friends and then you should read everything else yeah. And there's enough of them as well. There's loads of them. Oh, there's so many. Kind of the later ones, I think, get a little bit less matter-of-fact about
0: yeah death. They well, get a bit more high stakes. They seem to go on a sort of a Jojo Moyes territory. It sort of moves yeah. with the trend of the genre. And I actually think that has a lot to do. And I've talked to people who work in commercial women's fiction, and they do say this, that it's really hard. You keep the readers you have, and they age. So the people who are reading um, Jill Mantle in the 20s are now in their 40s or 50s and they have problems like long-term illness or whatever. But it's very hard to replenish to like, get new young people reading commercial chiclet because they're all reading Gillian Finn novels.
1: Ooh, that's yeah. so
0: interesting. Yeah. So there you go.
1: I mean, it explains <laughs> it. It explains it, but also I would really like the stakes in my romance novels to be like... To stay low. I mean, they're not even that low here. I don't even know what I'm talking about. No, but like, it's not. You know, I just don't. I don't want any organ donation. That's the thing that's really. Troubled me. <laughs> I draw the line. There, there's a real trend towards like people gasping their last in modern yeah. romance novels. Yeah, I prefer it when there's just kissing. So one
0: other thing about Orla is that she has this very um, detailed description
1: of how she plans her books. And can you read it for me, please? And this is how you plan out your work. Millie peered up at the series of charts pinned around the walls. Every chart was covered in a mishmash of names, arrows, and biographical details, and a different colored felt pen had been used for each of the characters. Beneath these descriptions, chapter headings were listed and cross referenced, enabling the various plot lines to be meticulously followed and worked out. God! Millie exclaimed, I had no idea this is like a military campaign. She'd naively imagined that writers just sat down and wrote whatever came into their heads. I know, I know. That's exactly what it's like. Orla heaved a sigh. Rigid, regimented, planned right through to the bitter end. So how do you think that impacted you as a writer? I thought that that was what you were supposed to do. It's not a million miles away. Unless you were going to pay £5,000 to a person you were following around and writing it. I I planned this Midnight Chicken book Mm -hmm. with so many coloured felt pens and threads and things pinned up on walls. Mm -hmm. I've seen it. It's amazing. You did a whole custom flowchart. I did. I did do that. But you, I don't think, ever saw it when it was sort of in its real I have directly copied what all a heart does because mm-hmm. she sells loads of copies thing, which is when I pinned up that flowchart on the wall and I had a thread and I had post-its and I had different felt pens and it was all over our flat mm-hmm. because I thought that was how you're supposed to write books. It, but it's a pretty good way of doing it. And I it think works it's, it's really probable well. that it's how Jill Mansell does it It is as not. Well. I asked Jill Mansell about this on Twitter. Really? And she said she heard that someone else very famous did it. Oh. And I said that I had been writing books for five years now. And it is only this year that it has occurred to me that I do not have to just do what all a heart does. (laughs) The fictional novelist. The thing is, this is what people want to read.
0: Yeah, but everybody does have their own way. You know, I, I love diagrams. Like, you do need to visually plan your work. Do you know what I mean? To an extent. You can't just open a document and then just keep going with that
1: document until it's over. You see, but the last book I've written. Yeah. I have just written. And it's very odd. I feel totally, like, unmoored from my... Is it in a good way? It's different. I'm yeah. trying it. I can't do everything just because that's what all a heart would do. I do most <laughs> things because that's what all a heart would do. Uh, what's Talk about your book for a minute.
0: I know. Plug your thing. No, I You're Miss it. Ella Bell on Twitter. You're Ella Rizbridger on Instagram. That sounds plausible. <laughs> and your first book is coming out in January. Midnight Chicken and other recipe is worth staying alive for yes fantastic well there is a recipe in it dedicated to me therefore it's the best one um, so everyone go buy that thank you so I yeah, did your plugging for you
1: that's friendship <laughs> it's, it's nice to have
0: a friend it's good to have a friend thank you Ella I loved reading Jill Mansell's book so much that I decided to interview her over the phone about Millie's fling and where she got the inspiration for such a unique story
2: People always ask where the ideas come from. And I can remember very clearly the ideas for this one. Um, our children were very small. We were on um, holiday in a fairly grim caravan park in Cornwall. And um, it was still quite poor then, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and somebody had left uh, a copy of the News of the World on a bench or something. So I picked it up and there was a piece in there about a woman who'd met the love of her life because he dropped his wallet and she'd gone through the wallet and thought, oh, I know quite a lot about him. So she phoned him up as a joke and pretended that she knew him. So I stole that idea for the book. Yeah. And, uh, but obviously gave it the twist that she's talking jokingly about his lovely wife or girlfriend. And then it turns out, that, you know, he's the tragic widower. So that was one of the starting off ideas. And the other one was, um... Poor Julie Cooper. Do you know the um the journalist and author Craig Brown? I don't. No. Uh, I think he used to write for The Times or the Telegraph. Anyway, he gave her, one of her books, the most awful review, and it was really, really terrible, criticising her and her books, everything about her. It was a famously awful review. So then I I sort of stole that idea for poor Orla. And, and had her fall in love with the guy at the end, which um, Julie Cooper didn't do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks to Jill for talking to me and thank you for listening. If you want to hear my full conversation with Jill, where we talk about snobbery, twiglets and why bad things happen to good people, listen out for the bonus episode, which is coming very soon. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Sentimental Garbage, where I chat to Helna Hara about Career Girls by Louise Mensch. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast, produced by Hannah Varrell.